Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started, Andrew. Um, really excited today. Uh, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah. Uh, upon recommendation, we have, uh, I think this is our second or third guest that we've had on uh, from a recommendation from a listener. So uh, I'm happy to introduce uh, Dr. Greg Tilka from Iowa State. Greg, how are we doing today? I'm doing fine, Andrew. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Super excited to hear from you. Yeah, it's 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 fun. Right before we started, um, I got to kind of formally introduce myself to Dr. Tilka. We've been working together with the university and, and our family business for a long time. So it's it's fun to have you on today, Dr. Tilka. Um we like to kind of start with with two questions. So I guess um I'm assuming most of our listeners don't need your background. Uh, but but for the sake of those that might not um know you well, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and your role today. Well, um, I am from Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. So I have great interest in this afternoon's Iowa State University bas- basketball game against University of Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Man. Um, Is that where you did your undergrad? Uh, no, I actually went to a small state school, but the okay. Pitt was the, the major uh, university that we would root for for basketball and football and so forth. So, okay. So uh, then I got my PhD at Georgia. And that's where I discovered nematodes and soybean cyst nematode. And I've been up here at Iowa State since February 12th, 1990. So uh, um, past 33-year mark um, and uh, going strong. And uh, I guess the only other thing I could say about myself is I don't like to be called doctor. There you go. John's done it once already. Well, that's perfect. I just call you Tilka. Yeah. Yeah. And Tilka or Greg is fine by me. So, so... Who are you rooting for today? I mean, that's a whoever's in the lead. <laughs> no, no, no. I I'm uh, I've lived and worked lived in Iowa and worked for Iowa State longer in my life than I had lived in Pennsylvania. So I'm going to be rooting for Iowa State University. I, I've got an Iowa State University um, pullover on. So that's who I'll be rooting for. Nice. I love it. Well, before we dig into the science behind cyst nematodes, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is, um, just agriculture as a whole. Tell us what you're excited about right now. 20, 2023, what's got Greg excited? Well, you know, excited could be good, excited or bad, excited, yep. you know? So I'm always excited about Iowa agriculture because I'm a soybean scientist and I tell my colleagues I live and work in the best state in the nation if you work on soybeans. And so I'm I'm excited every spring for a new field crop season. I'm also excited, I guess, on new technologies that I see coming our way for soybean cyst nematode management. Um, but I'm excited in a frightened kind of way about um, what we're seeing in the field with the loss of effectiveness of the easy to come by SCN uh, resistance. Yep. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get into that as we dig into some of the the science and management questions. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I, I figured it'd be good to start. You know, I, I, obviously you were you were recommended to have on as as you know from one of our listeners. But above and beyond that, I, I feel like 
whether it's corn nematodes, but especially SCN, I feel like it's become more more of an issue here in the last few years than it has in the past. And, and obviously, we'll dig into that. But mm-hmm. let, let's start with with um, you having having you know running us through the life cycle of of the soybean okay. cyst nematode. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to do that just verbally. I'm used to having <laughs> slides and everything, but imagine we're just going to start the life cycle with an egg, and that's a little microscopic oval-shaped thing that eventually has a little worm curled up inside, and that's called the juvenile, and the juvenile hatches out of the egg and finds its way to a root, and it penetrates the root and migrates to the center of the root where the vascular tissue is. And it sets up a living feeding site in the vascular tissue of the soybean root. And so there are many nematodes that are destructive feeders and they just kill cells in the roots as they go about their business and eat. Soybean cyst nematode, once it gets to the vascular tissue inside the root, it sets up, it actually changes the biology of the plant cells and makes them start making food for the nematode. And uh, it's pretty amazing. That's a hot area of research and it has been for decades, what the nematode is doing to those living plant cells to change their biology. Hmm. And we know more now than we did 30 years ago, but we still don't have it all figured out. But somehow the nematode uses its secretions, or we call it its spit, and it um, injects uh, something into a living root cell, and that root cell changes. It becomes very active metabolically. It increases in size, and all that is just to provide food for the nematode. So that juvenile now has place to feed inside the root, and it starts feeding, and, and that's when it starts to swell up. So I should have mentioned the juvenile that hatches out of the egg is worm-shaped. It's long and thin, and it's microscopic as well. So you would never see an SCN juvenile with your naked eye. But it's a little worm that migrates into the root. Once it starts feeding, then it starts to swell. And it takes on kind of a lemon shape. And um, if it's going to become a male, it takes on somewhat of a lemon shape but then it reverts back to a worm and it leaves the root. So this is mother nature is really confusing. Both males and females go in the root, set up feeding, feed for a while, and males will swell for a few days and then they revert or change back into a worm and they leave the root. The female, meanwhile, continues to feed and get larger and larger and eventually takes on a lemon shape. And she's so big that she pops out of the root And that's what we can see on the root. So one of the ways we advise farmers to check for SCN during the growing season is dig roots and look for the little white SCN females. Now, now at that point, males are in the soil. They're worms. Um, Females are on the surface of the root as these little white objects. And they mate. And then the female starts making eggs. And she'll make about 50 to 100 eggs outside of her body in a little clump. We call it an egg mass, but then she starts producing eggs inside of her body. And remember, she's lemon shaped. So she can produce a couple 300 eggs inside of her body until it eventually kills her because there's no room for her guts to operate. It's she's just full of eggs. And 
when she dies is when we stop calling her a female and we start calling her a cyst. Okay. So a cyst is nothing more than a dead adult female full of eggs. And that female's body, when she becomes a cyst, it becomes very brown and tough and leathery. And it forms that nice survival structure for the eggs, the living eggs that are inside. And at that point, she also it no longer is firmly attached to the roots. And if you would dig up some roots, that cyst would fall off the roots and be in the soil. And then those eggs, either outside of her body or inside of her body, are going to hatch and the little juveniles will come out. So uh, one point that um, it took me many years to figure out is the perception that the cyst or the dead female cracks open somehow to release eggs. And that's not true. Um, the eggs hatch at first when she's just in the soil the first year she was produced. They, they hatch while they're inside the cyst and they wiggle their way out either through where her head used to be or where her rear end used to be. But eventually that cyst in the soil starts to break down and degrade. And then it's easier for the nematode to uh, the hatched juvenile to wiggle its way uh, out. So cysts don't hatch, um, females don't hatch. It's the living eggs inside the female or the cyst that hatch. And then of course, that's where I started my description of the life cycle is with the egg. Yeah. So we're back to the beginning. So back to the beginning, how long is, how long is cyst survival in the soil? Is that determinant on the host or can they survive for a period of time just as soil born? Could you repeat that question, Sean? So I'm almost a little thrown. <laughs> so how long can they survive in the soil? Yeah. yeah like those cysts right. specifically. Yeah. 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 Plain and simple. How long can they survive in the soil? Yeah. Good. Um, a decade or more. Oh, and boy. so that, <laughs> let, that takes us to, uh, to hatching again. Um, that female that produces hundreds of eggs, some of them are going to hatch in the soil when it's warm enough and moist enough. And so those eggs are going to hatch even when we're growing corn in a field. Then there's some eggs that are going to hatch only when they sense compounds or chemicals given off by soybean roots. And then there's another proportion of the eggs that are not going to hatch no matter what until a certain number of years go by. And the old timers report that they've done experiments where they've left the field completely fallow for a decade or more and then started growing soybeans. And within a year or two, they found SCN females on their roots again. Wow, so wow. There, there's no great experimental evidence that they live a decade or more. But the, the conventional wisdom from the old timers and, and Andrew, I, I'm offended that you laughed when I said old timers. <laughs> That, uh, that tells me I'm in that class. But I grew up um, with a, a fellow named Bob Riggs from Arkansas, and uh, he did tremendous foundational work on SCN in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it was his era that did some of these studies where they left things unplanted for a decade or more and came up with the, the uh, conclusion that some eggs can live a decade or more. I, I use the term experience, Toka. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom. So I get weathered a lot. I get (laughs) weathered. That guy looks weathered. Yeah. Smart, but weathered. So, so you got me to thinking and maybe kind of ask that. So, so we have these cysts and and these, these juveniles that will hatch eventually in those cysts. Mm -hmm. Does weather or anything, whether it's saturated soils, completely cold, you know, freezing soil temperatures, does that impact the cyst and the juveniles within it? It doesn't sound like it. Um, yeah, it, not really. So uh, I mentioned I came from the University of Georgia to here, and I did that move in February of 1990. And I thought I was going to have the easiest job in the world because <laughs> how in the world can anything live in our soils up here, right? Well, it's the exact opposite. Um, SCN eggs die off more in the winter in the south than they do up here in the frozen tundra hmm. <clears throat> because in the south all the natural enemies that eat nematodes are active in the non-frozen soil so there are hmm. bacteria and fungi and other nematodes that eat scn eggs that are active <clears throat> excuse me and going at it in the winter up here everything stops so we have higher overwinter survival hmm. up here in the north than occurs in the the southern that is uh, very interesting. Soils. Yep. Wow. So then you you had mentioned about um, uh, saturated soils. Uh, another thing is that you cannot drown the nematode. It's an animal. It needs oxygen, but you can't drown it. It gets its oxygen from the soil moisture, the water in the soil. Hmm. So um, much like fish have gills to absorb oxygen from water, the nematode's skin or body wall is able to absorb oxygen from water in the soil. And yeah, there comes a point where you can actually have um, stagnant water in the soil, but that would be, it would take days, if not weeks of flooding and no movement of the water to to deplete the oxygen in soil moisture. So you, you can't really drown the nematode. I get that question a lot in years when we have flooding. Yeah. Um, and it's always people are looking for a silver lining in a disaster and, yeah. and that's what <laughs> for the nematode. Well, but I think about last early summer here, end of May, early June around central Iowa, you know, we had torrential rains over a period of a couple weeks, mm-hmm. heavy saturation, but all of that water was still moving. I mean, I, I yeah. suppose there would have been small pockets that, that you mm-hmm. might've had, maybe short periods of stagnant water, but it wasn't, it it wasn't, you know, significant periods of time. So um, I think you might've answered this a little bit, but, but give us a little bit of clarification around. So what, what is there a trigger for the start of releasing the eggs? Yeah. Yeah. So again, though, that the eggs aren't, aren't really released from the cyst. They're just kind of there. And then it would be the juveniles that come out of the eggs Yep, and, there are three hatching behaviors. Um, some eggs hatch when it's warm enough and moist enough in the growing season. Some hatch in response to compounds or chemicals given off by growing soybean roots. And then some are dormant. Um, and the proportion is, can't really give specifics on the proportions other than 40 or 50% of that population of eggs is going to be dormant. And we know that from doing hatching experiments uh, in the laboratory. Under the most ideal conditions, we can only get 50% hatch. Um, So we know there's just half of the eggs that are alive and they're not hatching and we have to assume they're dormant. So 
once the hatch occurs, um, how are the juveniles finding the roots? What what specifically are they attracted to? Yeah, and, and it's taken me many years. I guess that's a benefit of being weathered or experienced <laughs> um, to formulate this. That I, I think it's as much. I don't think based on our experiments that there's a real strong movement of the juveniles to soybean roots. We've done experiments to kind of test this and there's a little bit of attraction, but not a lot. Um, And so it's as much as the root growing by the nematode in the soil. Just by chance, huh? Right place, right time. Right. What are are the males doing right now? I mean, right. They all right get a, now, well, no, I mean, I mean, what are they doing the whole time? Because they leave and they just get to go hang out. Well, they leave and and they they get attracted to females to mate, but after okay. they mate, then they just hang out and eventually die. They starve. Hmm. So, um, so, so thinking about, so it sounds like just by chance. So we have the, these roots that will just by chance grow into these mm-hmm. juveniles, right? And and it. I guess I was going to ask if there's anything that impedes the movement of these juveniles to the roots, but is is there any, even though they're not searching for roots, is there any impact on the soil texture, whether it's sandy or or heavy clays that would impact their ability to get to the soybean roots? Well, there, as we've talked about earlier, you can't drown a nematode, but, but still one might wonder if saturated soil prevents their movement. But, but another piece I've learned in decades of studying the nematode that, sets the stage is these nematodes exist in water, but it's a microscopic film of water around the soil particle. So they're not cruising through pore spaces. They are on the surface of water, of soil particles. There's a microscopic film of water on every soil particle. And you could might say, well, in drought year, that soil is really dry. There's no moisture in there. There's still a microscopic film of water around every soil particle. So um, wow. that's the nematode's habitat. The nematode isn't a real strong swimmer, so it wouldn't do very well cruising through pore spaces full of water. It it gets its traction from being in a very thin film of water on a soil particle, and it does just fine. Hmm. Now, having said that, we have learned that the nematode reproduction is maximum in dry soils. And in my mind, dry soils equate usually or most frequently to sandy soils. Um, And we don't know the mechanism for that. But in um, certainly in southeast Iowa, where we do experiments around Fruitland and Muscatine, we get the highest reproduction of any field experiment we do. And then in general, in drought years, we see much higher reproduction than in years of adequate or excess moisture. So there's some connection to soil moisture or lack of moisture that really affects how well the nematode reproduces. And we don't understand the mode of action for that. So when the just by chance route <laughs> goes by, how do they enter? So the, the worm has a little mouth spear. It's, it's kind of, it's shaped like a, almost like a hypodermic needle that it's able to poke out of its mouth and puncture the plant, the epidermis of the plant. And then it burrows through the outer part of the root that's called the cortex. And it's going just through cells. It's just killing. It makes a path of destruction on its way to the vascular cylinder, which is 
You know, if you think of the root as a tube, the vasculature tissue is a tube within the tube. Yep. And somehow it knows to go deep into the root and it knows when it gets to the vasculature tissue to start setting up a feeding site. Hmm, interesting. So yeah. you, you kind of touched on this earlier too, you know, they, they have, they, they kind of, the, the cell kind of um, changes the biology of the plant cell in, in order to feed that nematode. Yeah. What exactly, you know, I'm picturing uh, just a, a fungal pathogen or something that would feed on, on some of the sugars or, or something in, mm-hmm. in a plant, right? Um, what, what are they changing in that, that plant mm-hmm. cell, the biology to feed on? Well, if Andrew, if I knew the answer to that specifically, I'd have <laughs> you a retire. Hanging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that is a tremendous area of research. Uh, at Iowa State, we have a scientist, Dr. Thomas Baum, yeah. that is researching that. There's scientists across, there's in the University of Georgia, NC State, and they're all searching for what exactly is the nematode doing to change the basic biology of the plant. All I can tell you is that plant cell starts out as a normal plant cell, which has one nucleus. It has a big vacuole, which is like a bubble that the the cell puts um, waste products into and some cytoplasm. And once the nematode starts feeding, the vacuole disappears. There's it's jam packed with cytoplasm with organelles and it starts to have dozens and dozens of nuclei. So, that feeding site, which is a living plant cell, it's now called a syncytium. It looks like no other cell in the soybean plant. Hmm. It's spectacular how the biology changes, and we don't understand fully the mechanism. I will tell you the other cool thing about it is if, you know, as this nematode's feeding on this feeding site, it's swelling, you can reach in with a microscope. Uh, a, a very thin needle. And if you rupture the nematode to kill it, that feeding site degenerates and it dies off as well. So really? the nematode wow. causes these crazy changes in that plant cell and it needs the nematode to continue to feed it, to keep it alive. And I say feed hmm. it probably to stimulate it. To Sounds like it. sci-fi. That's cool stuff. Yeah, it does. Like, yeah, some sort of a, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. The feeding sites that you're referring to, um, or the, the the entry wound for the cyst, mm-hmm. yep. do they allow um, other pathogens into the plant? Yeah, we, we kind of think so, but there's not a lot of good experimental evidence, but common sense would tell us that that's true. Um, the one that everybody brings up is we know that soybean cyst nematode makes soybeans more vulnerable to sudden death syndrome. Yep. And that's a fungal disease yep. that infects the roots. It's a fusarium. And so lots of people jump immediately to the conclusion that the fusarium is growing into the soybean root behind the juvenile nematode because of the wounds. And we actually had a graduate student. I helped work with him. He, he worked with Dr. Leonor Leandro here at Iowa State. And um, we didn't find any evidence of the SDS fungus following the wounds of a SCN juvenile. But that, that's just one pathogen and one set of experiments that still could be happening with other fungal pathogens or bacterial diseases and so forth. Yeah. That's that's very interesting because that mm-hmm. gets talked about in, you know, just commercial mm-hmm. yeah. agronomy like sales as if it's just a, a foregone conclusion that yeah. that's true and accurate. That's that's yeah. interesting. And and it it still could be, Sean. We 
as a, I'm a, as much of a researcher as an extension person, and I don't believe something until I see overwhelming evidence in a scientific paper that's been published. And yeah. but, but some things aren't just haven't been researched enough to be published. So it still could happen. I have to keep an open mind as a scientist that some of these things might be happening and we just haven't seen a conclusive experimental evidence that they're happening. So yeah. it's still possible. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Well, um, there's definitely anecdotal evidence in the yep. field that those two things, you know, yep. it's either a great coincidence or, <laughs> or there's something there, but yeah. No, yeah. there, there's definitely something there. Fields that have SDS, the symptoms show up earlier in the season and become more severe than fields that don't have SCN. And there's been some experiments done with microplots there where um, scientists would just add the fungus alone and get SDS symptoms. But in plots where they added fungus and nematode, symptoms showed up weeks earlier and they became more severe. So there, there is something there. It's the wounding part where... W- we don't have convincing experimental evidence yet. Yeah, yeah. It still could be true. Yeah. So, so once the, once those uh, those juveniles enter the root, how, how long does it take be, before that female starts to swell and produce eggs? Yeah. Just a matter of four or five, six days. Hmm. That's that's pretty dang quick. Yeah, it is quick. And a new fully formed adult females, it's probably between eleven and thirteen days. And the same with adult males. So and how, then after males mate with females, it takes that female another seven days or so to produce all the eggs. So how many generations does that across the growing season? Yeah. Here in Iowa, it, it's got to be a minimum of three. And I think there's probably some years that it's six. Um, I've not figured out a good way to come up with a finite number so I could publish it in a scientific journal paper like <laughs> yeah. I was talking about. Um, but, um, the other thing that's a little complicating is that all those eggs in the spring don't hatch on the same day. So the generations aren't synchronous. Oh yeah. Um, they, they start to hatch when it gets warm enough. Um, but they're going to be hatching, you know, if, if beans are planted in mid-May, they're going to be hatching starting in mid-May through the next month. So it's hard to measure discrete, um, generations. Yeah. So, so we have these uh, juveniles, we'll say females in, in the soybean mm-hmm. root. What, what, are the, what are the males attracted to, to those females? Is, is there a pheromone or something they give off, some volatile? There is. Early rumors were that it, if it attracted males, it must smell like beer. <laughs> yeah, those, those, roots, those rumors were dispelled. Um, but, but there are two scientific papers that say it's vanillic acid. Vanillic acid. And that's just a compound. Um, and I will say that I've had a PhD student who just graduated oh, a week or two ago who tried to do experiments with vanillic acid and was unable to repeat the results that had been published. But those results were published like 30 years ago. So uh, that's another golden rule of science is sometimes when you can't repeat somebody else's results, unless you've done exactly the same methods. It, it could be your methods and, and she didn't use the exact same methods. So, but we've been taught and we've learned and we believe that there's some pheromone and there are a couple papers saying it's vanillic acid. That's interesting. So, so if, if we can have multiple generations per year, is, is there a trigger? How, how does that, that nematode know when to 
become a cyst? You know, I'm picturing obviously it has to do with cold weather, but how, how does it know to make that transition from continuously make, making and releasing gener, you know, new generations to becoming mm-hmm. a cyst for survival? Well, you, you're, you're giving it too much credit in that it's thinking or making a decision. It's, it, they're dumb. They're just cold blooded animals. They're going to, they're going to infect when it gets warm enough in the spring, they're going to do their thing. Um, when the eggs, new eggs are formed, um, those that aren't dormant are going to hatch and go and do new infection. Um, and that's going to keep going over and over and over again till we get to September, October. And we know there's a minimum temperature below which certain life stages can't survive over winter. And that's like 15 degrees Fahrenheit or so, I think, um, although I wouldn't be, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but there is a minimum soil temperature where developing nematodes can't survive. The eggs can survive. Clearly the eggs can survive over winter because we wouldn't be talking about this problem if the eggs (laughs) couldn't survive over winter. And, And just one anecdote, there was a company that wanted to work with SCN uh, in the state of California, and they wanted to buy nematodes from me. And um, soybean cyst nematode doesn't exist in the state of California, and I didn't want to be in the history book. <laughs> the, the guy that was, mailed uh, them out there. Right, yeah. yeah. So they wanted the DNA, so they said, well, we don't care. You can go ahead and kill them if you want. We put SCN eggs in minus 80 degree Celsius for a week, and that didn't kill Jeez! Whoa! So I mean, in minus eighty, I'm a simpleton. What's what's minus eighty Celsius? Yeah, I I don't know what it is. Really cold. That's cold. Triple digits. Yeah, it would be like minus a hundred and some. That's crazy. Yeah, unfathomably cold. Was there any? Was there any that died, or was it just pure everything? No, we didn't. We didn't go to that effort. I just wanted to know if they were all dead, and And we we put those eggs in minus eighty for a week, and then we thawed them out and poured them on soybean roots and. Three weeks later, we saw SCN females. Wow. So, yeah. Mm. Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. We we do all these talks, and it's, and it's interesting when we do our podcast. And, you know, it's like just the evolution of these diseases and pests and stuff. I mm. mean, it becomes scary the more you, the more you learn. It's almost like the scarier they become. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, how am I ever going to manage this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they, it seems like every time we get any sort of information, there's just an evolution that, yeah. th- that makes it trickier. Um, this has been really, really good, Greg. Would you, um, maybe just as we wrap up the science, talk a little bit about corn nematodes. I, I realize we could probably do a whole nother show, but it seems like that's becoming a hot topic in agriculture. Um, talk a little bit about corn nematodes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, soybean cyst nematode, that's how I answer all questions. I don't know the answer. I go back to what I know. <laughs> soybean cyst nematode we've all talked about is a introduced pest to the United States. So I have maps of what counties and what states have SCN, and it's spreading every three or four years. I publish a new map. Completely different mindset with nematodes that feed on corn. And first off, you'll know, I didn't say corn nematodes. I said nematodes that feed on corn. And that's because these nematodes are not specific just to corn. And the second thing is they're native. Almost all of them are native to the U.S. And they were feeding on prairie plants and other native plants before us humans decided to start growing corn as a crop. So there's... 20 some different kind that you could encounter 
my predecessor here at Iowa State spent his career of the 60s, 70s, and 80s studying nematodes on corn, found 22 different species, I believe, found them all over the state of Iowa, did good research with soil-applied nematicides. Um, But they're not at all like soybean cyst nematode. We know if you have SCN in a field, you are currently losing yield or you're going to lose yield in the future. That is completely the opposite with nematodes on corn. Um, Almost every field in which corn is grown is going to have some low levels of nematodes that can feed on corn. But you got to keep the mindset that they're native. Most of these are native to Iowa. And it's only when we don't understand what happens, things get out of whack, that numbers get really high and you suffer yield reductions. So just to get a soil sample taken from a field and send it to a lab and get a report back that it's got nematodes that feed on corn um, doesn't mean damage is occurring. Hmm. Now, with nature, it's hard to always say something unequivocally. There are two nematodes that feed on corn that the minute we detect it, we know it's causing yield loss. And those are the sting and the needle nematode. They are the biggest of the nematodes that feed on corn that we're going to encounter. And um, the damage threshold is one. One worm per half a cup of soil is known to reduce yield. Hmm. Then there's four or five other types that you need about 500 worms per half a cup of soil for them to be considered damaging. And then there's another 10 or more types where you need a thousand or 2000 worms per half a cup of soil. So that kind of maybe is a good place to summarize. So corn nematodes or nematodes that feed on corn um, are probably present in every field in the state of Iowa that had soybeans grown in it because they were growing on um, prairie plants, native plants before we started growing corn. Um, But there are a couple exceptions and even the ones that require 500 worms or 1,000 worms, they can reach damaging levels sometimes, but there's a lot more finesse involved in sampling and determining if you've got a problem and then what do you do to manage it? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, thank you for the the high level. I When I saw that question, I, I thought my assumption is that's, that's almost guaranteed to trigger the need for another show <laughs> um, entirely, but... Um, Greg, thank you so much. Um, the The science, this was excellent. I don't think I've ever written this many notes. I'm gonna I'm gonna lock this one away. I really appreciate it. But um, anything, I guess we'll we'll transition to the science or to the management. I'm sorry, the management of soybean cyst nematode. Anything you want to add to the science portion for our listeners before we we conclude? Yeah, I would just do a, a kind of a transition summary. And that is that the biology of SCN makes it very difficult to manage in terms of its reproductive capability, you know, producing three, four, 500 eggs in a single female, um, maybe 500 is an overestimate, but 300, easy. Um, a generation time of four weeks. So we have three to six generations, survival of 10 years. Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll set the stage for is um, the fact that males mate with females means that there's a lot of genetic diversity that's occurring. And so Mm. um, the the nematode is extremely adaptable 
because males are mating with females. And there's always, every generation, there's a mixing up of the genetics. And that makes some management challenges. No, it was an excellent summary. Um, we will be back for part two next week of management of soybean cyst nematode. Um, Greg, thank you very much. This has been excellent. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.